Now, today we're going to talk about baptism. And uh, we have noted from previous lessons that as long as we're in Adam, there is absolutely no hope for us. There is hope only and conditionally if we are in Christ. And therefore, it is uh, very apparent that it's essential for uh, a person who is looking for salvation to get out of Adam and into Christ. And uh, in this group, I know I don't have to tell you that that process is baptism. We recall that Jesus himself said to his disciples, go into the all the world are habitable, it's perhaps a better <laughs> translation, uh, and preach the gospel, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now even that should be qualified because we know that uh, there's something more than that. And uh, this might indicate without other scripture that all you had to do was believe and be baptized and then uh, your salvation is assured, which is of course not so. And the Apostle Paul states that for as many as you as have been baptized into Christ, if ye be Christ's, and here's the qualification which I just mentioned, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And thus baptism is an act of obedience which God requires. And this is a, an, act, uh, an answer that you often uh, or sometimes get, even from brethren, that uh, what is baptism? Well, it's an act of obedience, which it is. But there's much more to it than that. Uh, what, what does this act of obedience involve? What does it signify? Uh, what does water do for the convert? And what does baptism involve? And other questions present themselves to the inquiring mind. Questions that really need to be answered to have a complete understanding of the subject of baptism. Now, we often hear in, in Christadelphian circles, we're often told that the word baptism itself uh, comes from the Greek words bapto and baptizo, and both of which carry the connotation of a complete covering. It never refers to sprinkling or pouring. And uh, yet we know that uh, in the uh, uh, contemporary churches, uh, they use baptism in that wrong or erroneous uh, way. We shall see why, even without having to define the word, why baptism does represent or uh, require complete covering. Now, a valid baptism does this for the convert. It inducts him into the name of Christ. That is, it takes him out of Adam, out from under the constitution of sin, and it brings him into Christ and under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Second, it remits <coughs> one's personal sins that are past, sins committed before the uh, ordinance of baptism is uh, obeyed. And... Uh, <coughs> We stress that because there are some that feel, perhaps, that uh, all we need to do is to be taken out of Adam into Christ. But uh, we have had personal sins, uh, did have personal sins. We, we can sin against God whether we're in Adam or in Christ, and those must be remitted or forgiven. And as uh, proof, I'll give you two references, Acts 2, 38 verse. Repent and be baptized for remission of sins. 
That's Acts 2, 38th verse. And again in Acts 22, 16, be baptized and wash away your sins. That's Acts 22, 16. Now there are other references. As a matter of fact, I think you'd find that these two references would refer you to others in, uh, if you have uh, marginal references. Now, I discussed, I mentioned a moment ago uh, that uh, this constitutes a valid baptism. Well, why did I use the word valid? Because it can be an invalid baptism. A valid baptism requires uh, belief in the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and those are outlined in our statement of faith. Those are the things that need to be believed as also uh, and included, rather, uh, the things that we must deny as uh, appears in doctrines to be rejected in the back of the statement of faith. Uh, so uh, let me repeat, a valid baptism, number one, requires belief in the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Second, it requires repentance. And third, it requires complete immersion. And if those three conditions are not met, it's not a valid baptism. Now, let's look at that word repentance that we just used. We said that repentance was essential, one of the three essentials, and uh, it has more than one meaning. Some attach the connotation to it as being uh, contrition or regret over one's past sins. And it does mean that, but it means more than that. If you can, uh, uh, if you will check it in any good dictionary, you'll find that uh, the word repentance also means, and this is very important, a change. It means reformation. The necessity for forsaking one's past ways and for turning over a new leaf, to use a common expression, for adopting a new way of life, new objectives, new ambitions, new hopes. And the Apostle Paul uses uh, the expression that there must be a continuance in well-doing, running with patience, race the set that is set before them. A continuance in well-doing, indicating that baptism does not end our quest for salvation. In fact, matter of fact, it only is the beginning. And thus, <coughs> the uh, uh, Apostle Paul states that if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. And he has reference to the second death after judgment. Or ye shall perish. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And he has reference here to live eternally. And that word modify means uh, to kill, to put to death. In other words, let me repeat this uh, in my own words, or injecting some of my own words. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall surely die or perish eternally. But if ye through the Spirit do kill, or destroy the deeds of the body, ye shall live everlastingly. Again, in Romans 12, 1 to 2, I think we better read that. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, he's speaking to the believers, to the brethren in Rome. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, your reasonable service. This isn't something that is beyond the call of duty. This is our reasonable service if we uh, are Christ's servants. 
and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here in the second verse, the Apostle Paul is saying what we said a moment ago, that we must, there must be a reformation, there must be a change or a transformation from the old ways to the new ways, from the uh, <coughs> old ways of sin to the new ways of uh, acts of righteousness. Uh, in other words, there must be a metamorphosis, a complete change in one's attitudes and hopes, as we mentioned ago. And this reminds me of butterflies. You may not see the connection, but uh, I'm sure we have all seen many butterflies, some of them very beautiful. But I'm sure you also know how they start out. They start out as worms. And isn't this... Uh, can't we apply this to the uh, person who first is in Adam and uh, leads uh, a life certainly not, uh, may not be wicked in the common sense of the word, but it's certainly not in uh, conformity to the will of God. And he comes to the light. Uh, he, he begins to learn of uh, the great salvation, and uh, this learning process turns into complete enlightenment at which time he seeks to be baptized or to be taken out of Adam and into Christ and then he comes forth a new or reformed creature he becomes then instead of a mere worm a butterfly uh, at the moment uh, uh, we won't discuss what happens to him after baptism but this is the process in fact becoming a butterfly can be carried through your uh, whole natural life after baptism and uh, I can't go into much detail as to the process of a butterfly coming from a, a, a worm other than I know the worm goes, uh, spins a cocoon, cocoon around it and uh, uh, I think lays some eggs from which comes the butterfly. But uh, for two reasons, we haven't got time to discuss the process further and more important, I don't know any more about it, uh, any more about the process than that. But it does remind me of what I think Isaiah said that God looks upon his creatures something to the effect as grasshoppers on the uh, circumference of the earth. Just a little thought there, and along the line here, the butterfly, after the worm takes on the protective covering of the cocoon, he doesn't lay eggs, he just goes through a change. And when he, the change is complete, that's when he becomes a butterfly. <laughs> it's, it's a little more of a... Well, that's what I say. I didn't know much about it. But there is a complete metamorphosis. A change in the worm itself. Not, hmm. not, he doesn't become a... A different thing there, but he just, after he takes on the covering there, the cocoon, I was thinking in terms of the covering of baptism there, if we, if we take on the covering of baptism, well, the same being there that we had before makes this change, and, and the butterfly is the same. We're the same person, but this represents the change. Very good. Now, over in the fifth chapter of Galatians, there is drawn a contrast between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. And... The works of the flesh would be those, should be though, uh, the works of the flesh are those things which are common to all humans, and the works of the Spirit are those works that should apply to the disciple of Christ uh, who has taken on the name of Christ. And in verse uh, 24, we read that they that are Christ have crucified the flesh, as if with the affections <coughs> or passions, as the margin says, and their lusts. <coughs> in other words, they have killed them as, or mortified them, as we pointed out a moment ago from another passage. 
And in verse 1, he, uh, he uh, has this exhortation. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Christ has made us free from uh, the laws of sin and death that bound us. Now, let's not be entangled again with the things of the flesh uh, and put back on this yoke of bondage which can only result in death. Not that we go back into Adam, but uh, although I know of uh, one case years ago where a woman thought that she was, uh, a sister in England it was, thought that there was a transition when you uh, were doing the works of the flesh, you were an Adam, and if you were uh, acting and performing righteously, you were in Christ. And then if you uh, backslid, then you uh, uh, became an Adam again. Of course, that isn't so, because baptism is the dividing line between the one constitution and the other. Uh, now, Peter expresses much the same thoughts which we might read in First Peter 4, 1 to 2, 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. That's the spirit mind that Christ possessed, that mind which was completely and perfectly attuned to his Father's will. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And then <coughs> uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 chapter 1 to 2 which we might read he asked the question what should we say then uh, he's in the previous chapter he's been speaking of the mercy of God toward his elect he says what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace or mercy may abound God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein <clears throat> now we come to uh, well, we want to discuss further this sixth chapter of Romans. Uh, yes, the sixth chapter of Romans. For here is, to me, one of the most beautiful analogies uh, or types that we have in the scriptures. There are many of them, of course. Uh, I think that baptism ha has uh, actually demonstrates two different types. Uh, perhaps in one case, Romans 6 demonstrates an anti-type, and in the other case, a type. We'll come to that. First, we'll talk uh, about this uh, being an anti-type of Christ's death uh, as a figure of his death, burial, and resurrection. First, let us very quickly, briefly, review uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus was of the same condemned nature as ours. He gave himself as a sin offering. He died, shedding his blood. He was buried in the grave or tomb, whereby he was completely covered or out of sight. The third day he rose from the dead. His body came forth from the grave, in other words to a newness of life, which I think most of us assume occurred uh, after the occasion when he told his disciples not to touch him, for he had not yet ascended to his father. Uh, later they could touch him, as we know he told Thomas to thrust his hand aside, so I think that this change occurred between those two incidents. Uh, 
before he was changed, he was, to all intents and purposes, uh, the same as a dead body, which under the Mosaic law uh, was uh, not to be touched. But then, when he could be touched, it would assume that he, his nature had been changed. From a uh, body of death, uh, from the natural body, to a body of life. He was now immortalized, incorruptible, and no more subject to the temptations of uh, the inherent sin nature. Now, let's turn, uh, uh, turn again to Romans 6, the third and fourth verses. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what was killed? Well, first, we're baptized into his death. <clears throat> we were symbolically performing that which he actually performed of dying. We were buried in water. Completely covered, that is. And here again is what, where I say that we don't necessarily need the definitions of bapto and baptizo because this type would, we wouldn't have this type if, uh, wouldn't, it would be meaningless if it was not a complete covering. We were uh, buried in water completely covered as he was buried or completely covered in the earth. We were raised out of the water even as he was brought forth uh, to the light of day from the tomb. And to what were we brought forth? To a new life, even as he was brought forth to a new life. Well, what was killed? Uh, what, what died when we went through the water of baptism? Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That's what died, our old man, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You notice it doesn't say we cannot serve sin, or we will not, but henceforth that we should not serve sin. So what was killed was the old man of the flesh, that which uh, has that of the carnal mind, which is concerned with temporal and carnal things rather than spiritual. Uh, so here, however, the antitype is not quite exact. Christ was immortalized, and he, from his new life, which then began, could no longer sin. He was incorruptible or incapable of being corrupted. However, this is not so in baptism. We come forth, and this is why antitypes do not always follow completely the type. We came forth, and we should be a new man, but because we still possess the uh, Adamic nature, because we possess the sin tendency in our nature, we, uh, of course, can and do sin. But our objective should be is to meet just as closely as possible that perfect mind uh, attuned to God that, was, uh, that belonged to Jesus. And uh, I like the way that... Uh, Brother Thomas Williams expresses it in World Redemption, page 485. I don't recall what edition that is, where he says, Symbolically, we die with him, are crucified with him, risen with him to a new life. That's very brief and succinct. So the lesson here is that man, through baptism, reforms, but that's what repentance means, being sorry for past sins and 
changing our way of life. Man through baptism reforms and adopts a new way of life. He is or should be and should exercise his will to the utmost to be dead to sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ, as recorded in verse 11, which we'll read, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, <clears throat> then follows in this sixth chapter of Romans, the apostles' exhortation and strong urging, while still capable of sin, he exhorts, let not sin reign in your mortal body. And this, of course, implies that it could reign in your mortal body, but he exhorts that you let it not. Uh, that's verse 12. And in verse 13, he states, yield yourselves to God, not to unrighteousness. And in verse 16, if you yield to sin, ye are servants of sin and not of God. And that's a very precarious position for the uh, uh, son or daughter of God to be in, to uh, having come into covenant relationship with God through Christ, to yield yourselves to sin, then you are no longer a servant, at least a true servant, of the God you continue, uh, you uh, claim to worship and to serve. Then continuing in verse 19, he speaks of their former uncleanness and iniquity, referring to uh, the time prior to uh, their acceptance of Christ, and he pleads for them to turn to righteousness. There was no profit uh, in their former life. We saw that the other day in, uh, what was it, Ephesians 2, which is an excellent uh, chapter, I think, which demonstrates the two conditions. There was no profit in their former life, uh, and he said over there in Ephesians uh, at that time they were without uh, uh, God and without hope in the world, and uh, they should now be ashamed of their former life, for the end was death. That's uh, uh, in verse 21. Now, as servants of God, their work should be unto God, and everlasting life is the reward. I didn't mark which passage that was, but uh, verse 22, if you want to make note of that. And in verse 23, the issue is death or life, servants of sin or servants of God, very simply stated. Now, I mentioned a, a while ago that, uh, I, that Romans 6 was the antitype of Christ's death, but is also the type of our own uh, death, burial, and resurrection in time to come. For just as surely as we become a part of Christ by baptism and uh, inducted into the collective body of Christ, we too will follow the pattern of events that he set up. We're sure to follow to a point. Beyond that, uh, we would qualify it. Up to a point, we too, in the natural, co normal course of events, if the master does not reap, uh, reappear in the meantime, in the normal course of events, we too will die, and we will be buried, and we will go into the grave. And in the normal course of events, and if we die, 
if the Lord does not return before that time, even though we die, we will be brought forth again from the grave even as he was. But here is the point where there may be a difference. Will we, at that time, like him, be changed to an incorruptible body? Well, let us hope and pray that that will be so of every one of us. But we do not know. We do not know the measure of God's mercy. We know he's merciful, otherwise there'd be no hope for any of us. But we cannot depend on his mercy and go merrily on our way doing everything that we, uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life uh, tells us to do. It depends, the antitype uh, at this point depends on uh, our acts, our conduct, our behavior, our way of life uh, through our probationary period. But we do have this uh, assurance uh, over in Second Peter, first chapter, uh, where briefly uh, we find that if we, that is those in Christ, are diligent and are virtuous and are faithful and are knowledgeable and are temperate and are patient, and our godly and kind and loving, and all the other Christian virtues which can be uh, summed up in the uh, fruit of the Spirit, as occurs in Galatians 5, uh, then we can reasonably expect the mercy of God to be exercised upon us and to require and to be rewarded with that same Spirit, incorruptible, everlasting life that. Uh, Jesus ascended to uh, shortly after his resurrection. And uh, in the same chapter, 2 Peter 1, and as embraced in the 4th fourth, fourth to the 11th verses, uh, and I would like to just briefly paraphrase or summarize those verses rather than read them all, uh, what Peter says here, if ye do these things, that is if you are diligent, vir uh, virtuous, and faithful, and knowledgeable and temperate and patient, godly, kind and loving and so on. If ye do these things, ye shall never fail. And we will be partakers then of the divine nature. And an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let us uh, turn to, on the subject of baptism, let us turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5. And here the Apostle Paul, I'll repeat that, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. <clears throat> but with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. <laughs> Now, this, of course, 
refers to the national baptism of Israel as they came out of Egypt, as they came out of bondage. Where they, there was provided for them a passage through the Red Sea <coughs> so that the uh, Apostle speaks uh, of them being baptized in the sea below. Now remember, types do not, and, and antitypes are not all exactly alike. This doesn't mean that each one was covered over with water from head to foot, but with the water below, from on either side from the sea and the cloud above, we can say that nationally this, what, some two million people was it, uh, has an estimate, were covered with water above and below. And so they escaped the bondage under which, uh, which they had experienced under the Egyptians. This was deliverance then from a state of bondage to a state of freedom through the medium of a national baptism. This uh, going through the Red Sea with the sea below and the cloud above. Nationally, they were, as a nation at this time, they were baptized into Moses. Not necessarily into Christ, into Moses. And they were God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people before that, but he enunciated this to them in uh, after they had crossed over, that they were his chosen people, a uh, uh, chosen nation. Now, <clears throat> we don't uh, know how many of these may have been uh, at the same time baptized into the first uh, Abrahamic covenant. That required faith. All the Jews, although all the Jews were in covenant relationship to God, it was through the Mosaic, which could not give life. But through faith, they could be also under the Abrahamic covenant. And it's not revealed, as far as I know, uh, what the test was or at what time or when in their uh, personal life uh, they uh, came under the Abrahamic covenant if they did. Uh, if they did, it would be, and I feel very uh, positive that some did, such as Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. Uh, if they did, we don't know just what the process was which compares with baptism in the Christian era. Uh, but those who were uh, through faith, or those who did through faith, come under the Abrahamic covenant, were baptized spiritually by faith in he who was to come, even Christ. Uh, I think that is the meaning of verse 4. But most were unfaithful, as verse 5 points out, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now you know that uh, a portion of uh, Sinai was called the wilderness of sin. I think uh, shortly after they left, and that was because I don't know whether that's where they got the name, but I assume the name came uh, into being because this was where Israel first showed signs of rebellion, uh, first sinned against God who had just delivered them. Uh, and so they were overthrown in the wilderness of sin. Uh, they were rebellious, they were complainers, 
They lack faith. Uh, they were stiff-necked. Now that term used to bother me. Uh, I, I presume you all know what it means. Now it doesn't mean that uh, they all had stiff necks and had to walk around like this. I have that quite often. Uh, I might be a rebel too. I hope not. But uh, the word was used because of its uh, uh, figurative meaning, not because of its literal meaning. Uh, it means obstinate and stubborn. And uh, I think you'll agree that that those qualities are not uh, uh, peculiar only to the Jews. I'm sure that uh, uh, I have some of those qualities, and I presume some of you do. So uh, if we think, instead of the term stiff-necked, if we think in our minds of being stubborn uh, and obdurate, uh, then we'll have a better understanding of uh, what the Jews were like. You know, I, I want to bring out here... Even amongst Christadelphians, we're so inclined often to say, oh, those Jews, oh, uh, how could they behave in the wilderness, particularly, or, but in later generations? How could they be so dumb, so stupid? Here, God had delivered them. They knew this from their fathers. He had been with them for centuries. Now I'm speaking uh, at a time considerably later than crossing the Red Sea. was it that they could uh, so reject God and so rebel against him? Well, we have the record of the Jews, what they were like, because they were God's chosen people. But suppose uh, instead of the Jews, he uh, selected the Americans. Would we have acted any different? I doubt it, because why did they act this way? They acted this way because of the sin tendency that reigns in every man's heart and because they were uh, sons and daughters of Adam. So uh, this is true in many instances in the scriptures that we may be inclined to blame uh, wicked men or rebellious men, stubborn men uh, uh, for their stupidity, and yet we don't know what we would have done under like circumstances. And so, uh, following this uh, uh, type of uh, baptism of Israel, they could not enter the promised land. Those, that is, those who were uh, stubborn and uh, obstinate and rebellious, com complainers, and who were lacking in faith, they could not enter the promised land. And if you remember, only Caleb and Joshua did. Now, I don't think this is going to rule out Moses from the from the uh, kingdom because uh, as a matter of uh, fact I know it won't because he mentioned amongst the faithful ones of Hebrews 11 but uh, this is a type remember and so Caleb and Joshua who were marked as faithful men were permitted to enter the land but the others were not uh, remember this covenant that was made uh, at Sinai was a national covenant uh, under the law which could not bring life it unless a man had faith he wasn't even under the abrahamic covenant and i'd like to read if i might just a paragraph or so from uh, elphus israel uh on this uh, matter because uh, dr thomas can express it so much uh, better than i can 
Well, uh, it's on page 292, but uh, let's see what edition this is. 14th edition. Uh, where it is in other editions, I know it's not the same page in mine. I had to borrow this one. I forgot mine. I th oh, uh, it may be on page 260 or 262 in the older editions, but I don't know at the moment what my own edition is. I haven't got it with me. Perhaps we might identify it further under the, a subheading here. Well, it's uh, in chapter 4, chapter 4 of Elpis Israel. And Dr. Thomas uh, says this. The, the apostle, in reference to the passage of the Red Sea, writes, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This was the national baptism, an entire obscuration of a whole nation from the view of all beholders on either shore. It was buried, that is, the nation was buried, not in the sea only, but in the cloud and in the sea, a cloud which was black with darkness to the Egyptians, but light to Israel between the icy walls of the sea. But, though buried, the nation rose again to a new life upon the opposite shore, leaving all their tyrant taskmasters and all their bondage behind them, washed away by the returning waters of the deep. First, then, believing in Moses and in the Lord, they were baptized into Moses, and so saved that day out of the hands of the Egyptians who were washed up dead upon the shore. Now there's much more on this, you know, how uh, Dr. Thomas went into infinite detail, and if we were to uh, read all that he said about this subject, why, it would take up the whole session. Uh, but uh, with that reference, you perhaps will want to uh, read it at home. Uh, so here is a, here is a, a lesson for us. Uh, now I'm speaking about the rebellious attitude. The Immediately after they had been saved out of bondage, almost immediately afterwards, then they reverted back to uh, their former uh, lustly uh, ways. And uh, as I said, whether it's the Jews as his chosen people or Gentiles such as us as his chosen people, uh, we, the same thing can happen to us. It happened to them. You know, uh, I find in some people uh, a tendency to take so many of these things we read about in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, as purely historical events and uh, don't seem to be able to apply the principles and the lessons in there to ourselves, uh, to our dispensation. But uh, <clears throat> these uh, things, as the Apostle uh, states, were examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That's, uh, that's in that uh, 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and as <clears throat> Uh, important to us for the lessons we learn. I can't remember the exact quotation, but you're familiar with it. So all scripture, uh, we should, uh, when we're studying the scriptures, we should always try to find, or to think of it first, not only as an historical incident, but to find out what lesson the Lord is trying to teach us by that incident. Many of them are very apparent, some of them are not so apparent, but usually 
uh, by digging and study, uh, you can find a lesson in almost every historical incident of the past. <coughs> and so, <coughs> the chosen people of God of this dispensation, uh, similarly, uh, those who have uh, and can call upon God uh, as their God, as could Israel in the past, those who have accepted Christ, who have accepted the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. But they too, and this I'm, I'm repeating, I'm emphasizing, they too can make the same mistake that did the Jews. They too, or we too, let's, let's use the term in the, uh, the personal pronoun, we, we too uh, can fail to endure hardship as did they. We can complain about hardships as did they. We can uh, uh, fail to make proper sacrifice and we can uh, fail to uh, accept privation uh, with contentment. For well, that's what the Apostle Paul has said, having food and rain there would be content. Uh, we can do this in our wilderness of sin. And uh, I'll tell you that the wilderness of sin in which we live in is much greater in extent and probably uh, much more acute than it was in Sinai in the days of Israel's deliverance. <clears throat> we too can complain and rebel and be disobedient and stubborn and obdurate or stiff-necked, if you will. We too can lust after evil things. And as a result, if we do, we too can be barred from entry into the promised land the promised land of the kingdom of God and everlasting life. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> on the subject of baptism, uh, we come to the subject uh, to the uh, incident of Naaman the leper. As uh, uh, as it occurs in 2 Kings 5. I don't know whether I ought to talk about this or not because Brother Paul Burden, his class, has kind of uh, uh, shot my uh, thoughts uh, to pieces because those who are in his class uh, will recall that he is of the opinion, and I think he's got something there, that uh, Naaman didn't suffer the disease that we know as leprosy. But I'm going ahead on the premise, and, and Brother Brother Paul Burnett doesn't claim that uh, this is necessarily right. This is his opinion. Opinion, And uh, being a doctor, he gave some pretty good proof. Me being a layman, I'm not going to try to give you the proof. But uh, he feels that because uh, of the, uh, uh, not the germ, bacteria or something, of tuberculosis and of cancer are in the same group, and they are the only two in that group, that uh, it is perhaps TB, uh, that the, the biblical leprosy is perhaps tuberculosis rather than leprosy. For this reason, I'm not trying to teach his subject, but uh, just as an introduction, uh, for this reason, and this has bothered me, perhaps has you, we know that leprosy as we know it today is incurable. Uh, but it wasn't then. So if it was the same form of leprosy as we know it today. The cures which were made under the Mosaic law must have been by miracle from God. But if they were, as Brother Paul suggests, uh, 
some variation of, of uh, uh, leprosy uh, or something between tuberculosis and leprosy, that would not necessarily be the case. But I'm going ahead on the assumption that uh, it was the lep a, that it was uh, a form of leprosy, and it was, if not fatal uh, or uncurable, it certainly was a very disagreeable and uh, miserable uh, disease. And in this chapter, uh, I'm not going to dwell much on it, uh, but in this chapter you uh, know the story as well as do I uh, of how Naaman, the Syrian uh, uh, general, I guess you'd call him, of the armies, uh, had leprosy. Now he was a, a fairly decent man, I, I would say, and uh, the little Jewish maid, captive maid, who was uh, a maid in his household, uh, suggested that because of this leprosy which he had, that he should go down and see the prophet and be cured down in Israel. And uh, she set the wheels in motion, and uh, as a result, he went to Elisha. And uh, Elisha, not directly, but through his servant, told him to bathe seven times in the river Jordan, and he would be cured of his leprosy. And uh, Naaman objected to this, uh, particularly when he saw the River Jordan. You know, some of these pictures we've been seeing, seeing around here, or that I have seen, I think perhaps here, some of them have been shown here, at times and in places, the River Jordan is not much more than what we'd call a brook. It's certainly not much of a stream. And uh, with some uh, understanding of human nature, we can see why Naaman objected to it. Uh, he said, uh, we've got greater rivers, uh, uh, Abana and Fapar in Damascus. Why should I come way down here and bathe in this uh, little uh, muddy, uh, insignificant stream? But his servant apparently was a little more wise, uh, a little more intelligent uh, or amenable to his suggestion than was Naaman. So uh, he told his master, Naaman, he said, uh, well, it can't do you any harm. Uh, why don't you try it? And then if that don't work, you can always go back home to Damascus and bathe in these other rivers. So uh, Naaman listened to his servant, fortunately, and he did wash and he was clean. And the flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was cured. Now, the lesson that we wanted to bring out here, uh, uh, the application of it, refers to uh, baptism. Leprosy is a type of death. I don't know how many of you are familiar with leprosy as we know it. It may not be, as Brother Paul suggests, the same thing in those days. But leprosy, as we know it, is a most horrible disease. And in fact, from history, back at least in the days of Christ, it was a horrible disease. And uh, Brother Paul pointed out that they had to wear a certain kind of clothes to identify them, and you couldn't, they couldn't approach other people within... Or was it 200 feet or something like that? And I've read that also they had to carry a bell to ring, to warn people, to keep away, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. And under the Grecian law, I don't know whether it was uh, under Roman law or not, but under the Grecian law, when a person contracted, uh, and this didn't apply to, to the elect of God necessarily, but uh, when a person contracted leprosy, they were considered as dead. Uh, I don't know what uh, uh, require or what the requirements were when a person died over there, but in the vital statistics, they were recorded as dead. Their property was 
uh, disposed of and, and given perhaps to their normal heirs. But uh, from that time on, to all intents and purposes and for all legal purposes, they were dead men. Uh, but in, uh, in leprosy, uh, it is literally uh, a case of dying by inches. The flesh falls away. Great blotches appear on the, on the flesh and they, uh, uh, the flesh actually decays. Your fingernails fall off pretty soon, your fingers uh, and your toenails pretty soon, your fingers and your toes and uh, your uh, arms and so on. So uh, they wither up and unless a person dies, and certainly he would probably prefer to die, uh, this process goes on until he's a living skeleton without uh, arms or legs and a cavernous uh, head, which is not much more than a skull. Well, that uh, very briefly, uh, and not completely, uh, perhaps uh, describes the uh, action or the uh, course that leprosy takes. Now, oftentimes leprosy, not always, but oftentimes leprosy was the result of inheritance of the sins of the fathers, or let me say inheritance of the effects of sins of the fathers. And uh, here we see the type that some of our, many of our troubles, uh, this sin nature we possess is the result of the sin of our father, our father in this case, Adam. Uh, but in any event, it often was uh, the result of sin either of the parents or the individual himself. Uh, now, uh, as we pointed out, Naaman raised logical questions as to the virtue of the Jordan River as compared to the rivers of Damascus. But uh, there was no, uh, no question as to the virtue of the water. The water didn't do a thing for them. Uh, and I should have said when we're talking about our baptism, the water itself doesn't make any difference. Where the water is, what kind of water, salt water, fresh, or what have you, or what kind of a uh, uh, container of the water one is baptized in, that has nothing to do with, uh, or it has no effect on the principle or ordinance of baptism. This, it's a matter of principle, a matter of obedience to be baptized. In Naaman's case, he had to go in and cover himself seven times. That has, uh, that was the direction, uh, the divine direction given through the prophet. <coughs> Six times wasn't enough. Eight, uh, eight times was too much. It, this was a matter of seeing how Naaman would obey the voice of the Lord. Now, in our case, we don't have to be baptized but once. And again, though, it's a matter of our being obedient to the voice of the Lord. So there was no virtue in the water, particularly, except as the water that God has prescribed, the River Jordan. And there is no virtue in the water with which, uh, in which we were baptized. Virtue, uh, the virtue is not in the water, but is in the obedience to God's will. And so the disciples of Christ, by washing in water, is delivered from death, that is, from the law of sin and death, of which leprosy is a type. And so, like Naaman, they come forth from the water, uh, a new man, a new life, a new hope, uh, the old washed out, the old cleansed, and now the man is clean. Naaman physically clean, physically cured of his leprosy, which is a type of, of death, we are cured figuratively of that 
uh, of the antitype or of the type death uh, by coming out from under the law of sin and death which consigns man to the grave forever. I think we just about have time to summarize what we've been saying uh, very quickly. Number one, baptism is a complete covering in water, any water. Two, repent it involves or requires repentance or contrition for past sins. Three, it requires reformation, dedication to a new life in service to God. Four, it sets aside the law of sin and death. It releases one from the condemnation resulting from Adamic sin. I'll say now, for those who are trying to copy these, I'll repeat these in a moment. Five, uh, one is one who is baptized is now in Christ and under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And six, a change in relationship has occurred, though no change in nature. I'll repeat those in a minute, but I'll just quickly write, like to refer to Proposition 16 in the statement of faith that the way to obtain this salvation is to believe the gospel they preached and to take on the name and service of Christ by being immersed in water into his name and continuing patiently in the observance of all things he has commanded, none being recognized as his friends except those who do what he has commanded. Now, I'll come back to those five points. This completes the lesson, but for those who are trying to copy them, I'll go through them again. One, complete covering in water, any water. Now, if, if there's anybody who hasn't got number one that wants it, speak up now. Now, if not, I'll go ahead. Number two, it, invo it involves repentance or contrition for past sins. Three, it involves reformation or dedication to a new life in service to God. Anybody now that hasn't got the first three? Four, it sets aside the law of sin and death or releases from condemnation which, has res which resulted from Adamic sin. Five, in Christ, they are now in Christ under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And six, this involves a change in relationship, but no change in nature. <laughs>